I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. What would it really mean if we'd got our heads around those first three chapters and understood what it meant to be part of a brand new community because of what God has done, if we could live like that here, in this town, in our schools, in our workplaces. And Lord willing, over the course of the next few weeks, you are going to tease that out in all of those different contexts. But this afternoon, the very first place that Paul wants to push that application is right here, in this church family, as a place where we see unity in the face of diversity. And if I could try to summarise what Paul says in 16 verses, he shows us that the church should be a community of unparalleled unity that delights in diversity and moves towards maturity. That's where we go. You as a church family are here to be a place of unparalleled unity that delights in diversity and moves towards maturity. Now, in the world in which we live, all of those words carry quite a lot of freight, don't they? Diversity and unity. So what we want to do is very carefully see what Paul has to say for us about what it means to be in the church family. And I want to see four different aspects to unity. And we're going to begin by seeing, oh, thank you so much, that we should be pursuing unity even though it's hard work. Now, you're in the honeymoon phase as a church, which is a really lovely place to be. Honeymoon's a lovely place to be if you're married. And I don't want to burst a bubble with cynicism. That's a horrible thing to do. But I do want to forewarn you that at some point in the not-too-distant future, you might find that things get a bit harder because all of us are a bunch of sinners, saved by grace, being changed more and more to be like Jesus Christ, but at foundational basics, given everything that happened in Genesis 3, we are flawed sinners. And there will come a time when that becomes harder for you, which is why... Paul describes unity as a battle. It's something you've got to fight for. Look at verse 3. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. That is not the language of let go and let God, is it? That's the language of blood, sweat, and tears. Unity requires constant effort, which <clears throat> should leave us asking, if Unity is really that important. If God really cares that we really get on with one another because of who we've become through Jesus, how do we pursue that in the church? In verse 2, Paul gives us some key ingredients. He says, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Now, for those of you who know each other fairly well in this room now, you might look around the room and think, that's quite a tall order. Maybe I'll just pick one of them. Maybe I'll pick humility, because that feels relatively easy. But well, it wouldn't have felt easy for the people that Paul first wrote this letter to. Because humility in their day, that meant servanthood. That meant caring and groveling and doing the stuff nobody else wanted to do. And in Paul's day, if you were fairly independent, fairly rich, you had somebody to do all that. He'd never do all that kind of stuff. But what Paul says is, if you are to live out the unity that is now yours because of what Jesus has done in your life, you need to be as humble as Jesus, who Paul describes in Philippians 
2 didn't consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Humility is not so easy, after all, is it? So maybe we'll go with patience, uh, which might sound like a slightly easier one to start with, until you realise that a load of really helpful English translations have made that word say, long suffering. <laughs> And you realise what Paul's describing isn't something easy. It's knowing that you're going to be hurt, and hurt, and hurt, and hurt, and hurt again. But you suffer long, remembering that our Father has suffered much longer to bring us into his family. And it's all really hard. Unity requires effort. And if you've started to get that point, can I ask whether, if we're being really honest this afternoon, all of that sounds a bit small and mundane. If you were here last week, when this church family were looking at Ephesians 3, Paul is describing this cosmic picture of the power and the grace of God, in which he displays all of his wisdom and all of his power in bringing all of these people together. And then we get to humility and patience. Well, sounds a bit small. Like, does God really care whether I'm genuinely humble and patient with the other people in my church family? And how is that little thing going to have any difference to bear on what God is doing on the big stage of history? One writer puts it this way. Although the scope of this vision spans the universe, it is accomplished through the cultivation of such mundane qualities as humility, patience, and lovingly putting up with the foibles of each other. To put it another way, our interrelationships are part of God's intergalactic plan to reveal his indescribable love and wisdom. You all know the joke. How do you eat an elephant? Toby, how do you eat an elephant? Carve and cook it. That would work. I was going with one bite at a time. But cut it up and cook it, it kind of gets you there, doesn't it, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You just, you, you look at something enormous, and if you want to devour it, you just cut it up and cook it. And eat it one bite at a time. Well, according to Paul, how does God reveal his wisdom in bringing a new humanity together for people from all sorts of tribes and backgrounds and peoples? He does it through one small act of kindness and humility and patience at a time. So when you're fighting to make every effort to respond to somebody gently, and you're trying hard to pursue that peace and that unity that Paul is describing here, remember that what you are doing is not insignificant. It is part of a plan that will point others to the God who has saved you and made you united, because unity requires hard work. Then... Secondly, we are to proclaim unity because it points to Jesus. Look at verses 4 to 6. There is, spot the ones. Somebody tell me how many ones there are under the age of 10. There is one body 
and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. How many did you count? Seven. <laughs> is he right yeah he was right seven there's seven and and i don't know about you but when, it, when you start talking about unity especially if you're growing up and you've lived in the world for a while and you've seen what happens when you try to get lots of people together around a common purpose which is one way of describing unity your heart may sink a little bit because you start thinking Oh, we're just going to start hitting the lowest common denominator. We've got to compromise. We've got to cave in. It's like coming together with a project at school. What you settle on is basically what nobody really wants to do, but it's the only thing that everybody could agree that they would do together. And on, on the big political stage, for us grown-ups looking at the world, we see a lot of that kind of compromise as Theresa May is trying to bring this Brexit deal together. She started off with these great plans of, of what it would be like, and then you chip away and you compromise and you negotiate, and by the time you get to the finish line, it feels like unity has pushed you towards something that is wafer thin and not what anybody intended. That is not the kind of unity that Paul describes in this church. That's why we look at the ones that he's referring to. He's putting up this framework for unity with seven fundamental theological truths, big picture ideas that have to be true for us to be united with other people. And we're not going to go through them in a lot of detail. But I want you to see that unity matters because of who God is. You look at verses four to six. The God that Paul has been praying that we would come to know more and more is a triune God. He is one God in three persons. So verses four to six, you see a father who planned before the dawn of time to redeem us through the work of Jesus, to, to fix the relationship that was broken with God through his son and in and through that finished work in Jesus. The Holy Spirit now comes to live in every single believer to make our relationships with one another as united as they are because of the finished work of Jesus. So every part of our salvation is pointing back to God, a triune God who is united in his personhood. And then he's creating a new humanity. That's what you've been looking at for the first the last two chapters, especially of Ephesians. You get to verse 4, and we're reminded that there's one body. That's, that's everything you've been looking at for the last two chapters. It's not Greek, and it's not Jew, and it's not this, and it's not that. There's no division. The gospel has bulldozed all of that. There is now a new community who have one hope. Jesus. Yet not I, but Christ in me. That's what we've just been singing. And through that one hope... And the one faith we have in that one person, there can only be one way to know him, which is why Paul says there's only one baptism. You look at this description of what Paul is saying with all of these ones, and he's reminding us of the God who saved us and what we should look like as a church family. In other words, unity is not just some vague Christian idea about Christian togetherness. It's a high-definition image salvation what it means to be saved by a triune God so it requires effort it reflects our salvation and then it portrays 
our unity, as we delight in diversity. Now, I want you to start thinking very practically, okay? When we're using words like unity, I don't want you to think uniformity. What do I mean by that? Imagine unity is a production line. And a few of you work in the manufacturing world, so you're very familiar with production lines. What's coming off the end of the unity production line? It isn't this. An identical collection of voxel asterisks. There's nothing wrong with voxel asterisks. But it's not just one astra after another astra after another astra, and everybody looks the same, and there's no difference. It's more like this. Does anybody know what's the common denominator in all of those pictures? Yes, your man. Well done! They're all Suzuki. Now, do any of them actually look alike? No. No. And let's be honest, you couldn't put the cars on the water or the boat on the land. There's bucket loads of differences between them. And yet, they are all united because they've come out of the same factory by the same designer. The Church of God is being... Oh, United, and it's united in its diversity. And that diversity comes because, why are we all different? Is it because some are better than others? No, it's nothing to do with that. It's because Jesus Christ gives different gifts to different people. That's what's going on in this quote of Psalm 68. Look at verse 7. And this, I'll be honest, is probably where at 20 past 5 on a Sunday afternoon your brain starts to unravel. What on earth has this got to do with anything? But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is what he says. When he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does that mean? I want to take you back to Kenilworth. And the year is 1266. Anybody know why that's significant for the castle of Kenilworth? Yes, young man. Not quite when it was built. So in 1266, that's a great idea, though. It looked a bit like this. There's a reconstruction for you. And in 1266, there was, yes, sir? Did they make them here? Sorry? Did they make them here in 1266? Not quite. Come to the back. There was a siege. There was a siege. And not just any siege. It was, and this is your claim to fame, the longest siege in medieval England. <laughs> Happened right here in Kenilworth. So there's Henry the third, third, second, uh, third. He's trying to get hold of Kenilworth Castle from the, the Montfords. And the Montfords, have, they've locked themselves in. They've managed to survive for 172 days. And eventually, through discussions and lots of bows and arrows, they eventually yielded. Now, I want you to imagine that you're Henry the third, there at Kenilworth Castle in 1266. You finally conquered back the castle. What you would do is you would get an enormous parade to march all the way up Castle Road and Clinton Road, and you would have a train of people following you who were de Montford's men, because they'd be embarrassed. And they'd follow you all the way up towards Kenilworth Castle. And there, Henry III, at the back of this long parade, would be on some elevated chair to be carried to a position of power. And when he gets to the castle in front of all of the people who have been captured... Now that the siege is over, Henry gives out gifts from the plunder to the different people who've helped him in the battle. That's what the psalmist is writing about in Psalm 68. But when Paul picks up that image, he's not describing 
some Roman or, or previous king. He's not even describing a British king. He's describing the king of kings who has been victorious over all things and all peoples and in his power and glory says, I need to give you this gift. I need to give you this gift. I need to give you this gift. And I'm going to give you this gift. And if you want to see some of that variety, look at verse 11. Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers. And we haven't got time this afternoon to tease out exactly what all of those offices mean. That's for you guys as a church family to spend time working out over the course of the next few years. But here's the point. Don't miss the big point in the list. The focus is not on the gifts. It's the generosity of the giver. Who gives all good gifts to his people. What this church family needs, I mean Kenilworth Community Church family needs, isn't one uniform type of Christian that all look the same. It's for you. All your different ages and stages and gifts and experience to lovingly work together to grow one another. It's only when we delight in that diversity that we are going to grow in our unity. And the longer you're together, the harder you'll find that is. Because different can sometimes be difficult. So you're sat in a home group and the conversation might go off in a direction that you're not quite expecting. You start planning Christmas events, all sorts of other events that you're longing to do to get the gospel out into the town of Kenilworth and Everybody's got different ideas and different gifts and different passions. And to the midst of all of that, Paul reminds us that it is the Lord Jesus Christ who gave you every single one of those gifts and calls you now to strive towards, to make every effort towards the unity of the Spirit through the bonds of peace. Now, one very specific application today, of all days, with Marco and Nicolette and the family here, is to remind ourselves of the great blessing of having Marco with you. It's a, it's a day of thanksgiving, not just welcoming, but of thanksgiving to God in bringing this dear family to this place. But I want you from the very get-go to not have the wrong idea about what this man means to this church. For all of our excitement, for all the prayers of, of Mighton, of Emmanuel, of the Kenilworth Community Church, don't have the wrong idea about what this man is going to do. How many of you like football? Okay, enough to understand that when I say, as you look at Marco, I don't want you to think of him as a Neymar or a Messi. <laughs> this man is not the guy who will just come in and wazzle-dazzle everybody. And your sole job is just to punt him the ball and leave him to do all the work and get everything done. Marco is more like a player coach. He's playing the same game you are. Serving alongside you, working alongside you, but seeking to encourage and equip and enable you to do what you are doing even better than you are. Alongside all of the other men that we, Lord willing, will see and part of the eldership in this church, that's the goal that Paul's got in mind in verse 12. He's talking about pastors and teachers. They're given for the very purpose of equipping God's people for works of service. Marco's great responsibility, the, the responsibility of all of the leaders of this church, 
is to help every single one of you do the work that the Lord has prepared in advance for you to do. Which gets us to the final point very briefly. Why does Jesus give us such different gifts? What's the point? Why do we need to strive towards unity? Paul tells us that we are to persevere in unity. Oh, there we go. Let me tell you what the point is. Persevere in unity so we can all be mature. If you look back at verse 11, Christ gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that, is the Bible's explanation, so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of God. I need to be quick. Let me say this. You will only become mature as you grow together. You cannot be a Christian Lone Ranger. That's not how God has made you. You look at the description that Paul paints in verses 15 and 16. He describes us as a body and, and every ligament is holding every part of the body together. I don't know if you've had a ligament injury. Anybody had a ligament injury? Okay, you know how painful it is and how long it takes for heal. I had a, well, you don't want to know about my ligament injury. I know that it hurts because we need every single one of those ligaments. There's not one that we don't need. And what Paul's describing is that we need each other to grow to become mature Christians. Because the alternative is really scary. Not depending on each other and not growing in our Christian life is really scary. Paul tells us how scary it is in verse 14. He describes a ship as being shipwrecked. Remember who wrote it. This letter was written by a man who had been shipwrecked. He knew what it was like to sit on a boat that felt too small for the waves and to be blown and tossed about and to be wondering whether he's ever going to survive. Paul says, I don't want you to be like that in the world. I want you to grow dependent on one another as you mature towards the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 15, by speaking the truth in love, we will grow together to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head. Christian maturity is not an individual goal. It's a family objective. And the great prayer of everybody from Emmanuel, everybody from Mighton, is that Kenilworth Community Church is going to pursue unity despite the fact that it's hard work. It's going to proclaim unity, to point others to Jesus. It's going to portray unity by delighting in all of the differences that make up your diversity. And it is going to persevere in unity so that you will all be mature.